You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thank you, Stephanie. Well, I want to add my welcome and greeting this morning. We're so glad that you're here and we do get to begin our sermon series, our study through the book of Romans, and I will tell you candidly, transparently, I have never, I don't think, I don't think I've ever felt as inadequate, as uh, unequal to the task of starting a sermon series, a book of the Bible like the book of Romans. I find myself uh, waking up this morning sort of in the cold sweats, just like, this is Romans. I find myself at base camp of Everest going, golly, that's a big rock. And so I feel like for however long we're going to be in Romans, um, it's going to be a daunting challenge, but I know that through the history of the church, God has used the book of Romans mightily every time it has been preached. It is Romans that was so impactful in the life of Martin Luther and in John Calvin. It was Romans that was so uh, significant in turning the heart and the mind of St. Augustine 1,700 years ago. The book of Romans is marvelous. In the morning, uh, as we start the, the series, I have titled the series opening sermon, The Gospel of God, because we've already heard that phrase is right there in Paul's introduction, the gospel of God. It is his whole purpose for writing the book. And so for us to really understand and appreciate what's going on, we have to actually wrap our hearts and our minds around what the gospel actually is. And I'll tell you that Paul's going to spend the entire book of Romans to explain precisely and practically what the gospel is. And that's really, really important. It's important that we sort of maybe allow a reforging, a reforming of what the gospel is, because all of us have pre-existing ideas, preconceived notions of what we think the gospel is. Now here at Bethel downtown, we like to say as frequently and consistently as we can that the gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. We try to say that like a refrain so that you, if you're ever questioned, that's the, the thing that's going to come up out of you, that the gospel is the good news, the awesome announcement, the great story of what God has done, past tense, in Christ. He's the agency to redeem. That's the purpose, us, to himself and to one another. That's the gospel. And I think Paul's going to do a tremendous job of setting all that up. Why am I making such a big deal about this on the front end? Well, I'm hopefully laying some groundwork for all of us to be changed by our time and our experience in the book of Romans. If you read through and really study the book of Romans and have no change whatsoever, then I would contend dogmatically that you didn't do it right. Because Romans is going to steal wool some stuff off of you that does not belong. And so my prayer is that all of us come together and study Romans as a community of faith. There's an old proverb that asks the question, how do you eat an elephant? And as Americans, we are wont to say, one bite at a time. But if you travel anywhere else in the world, they won't answer that way. If you ask someone in sub-Saharan Africa or in Latin America, how do you eat an elephant? They will say, you invite the entire village. And so as we stand here, if you'll allow me to mix metaphors, as we stand here at the brink of Everest, 
or an elephant or whatever. I hope that we do this together in community and that we sharpen one another. It might get sparky from time to time as iron sharpens iron. That's okay. We're going to go through the book of Romans together. All of us have the opportunity to be somewhat changed. All of us are going to have some preconceived notions that we've gathered and gleaned through time and tradition, through family and friends, that Romans is going to push up against. And so I'm going to invite you to slightly loosen, ever so slightly, the gates of your doctrinal defense. This is where you get to participate already this morning. Everyone, I need you to make some gates. Come on, you're not too cool. Make some gates. Literally, where you are, make some gates. If you think you're too cool to make gates, I have photo evidence as to why you are not. Everyone make some gates. Now, you might come from a background, from a tradition, in which any new cunning idea or hip podcast swings open your gates, and you just go, yep, I believe that, I'm all in. But probably, since you're sitting here at the 1030 service in a Bible church in East Texas, my sense is most of you have sealed your doctrinal defense gates, and you ain't open them unless the Lord Jesus himself kicks them open. Regardless of the topic, whether it's the timing of the rapture or anything else, I'm just going to say, I promise you, as we study, get your gates back up there, people! I promise you, as we study the book of Romans, I'm not going to threaten any of your bedrock foundations. I'm not going to question the doctrine of the Trinity, of inerrancy of Scripture, of salvation being by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Not at all. But I am going to push up, perhaps, some of our ecclesiastical and denominational traditions. Because those things must always be subservient to the text. So, I'm just going to invite you to maybe oil the hinges of your gates a little bit, and as you hear something, they go, hmm, that's not what I was taught in seventh grade or in seven-year-old VBS, and you have the instinct to slam the gates shut, cross your appendages, turn your shoulder, and scowl at me, just, just, whoa, 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 just a little bit. Let's just see if maybe the Spirit of God, through the writing of the Apostle Paul, nuances all of our theology. You can put your gates down. Because here's what I know about you, and here's what I know about me. We are human. We are still affected by the flesh, which means we still carry around what's called the noetic effect of sin. That means our thinkers busted, which means every single one of us thinks something wrong about God. Every single one of us has some area of doctrine or theology that can be polished or improved or fully orbed or something. So let's not be too quick to slam shut our defense of doctrine gates if perhaps the Spirit of God is trying to teach and expand us. Now, if you hear me say something like God is a bunny or salvation is by works, then yes, you cross every appendage including your pinky toe and run me out of here. I'm not going to do that. So let's try to come together as a community, as a campus, as a congregation, and let's work through this together. And I will tell you transparently that I've been praying this week, and I mean this, and I shared this with Mike earlier, I've been praying this week that God would save me from trying to be right. I have a really high value as a guy of being right. It's just that it happens so very unusually that I fight for it a lot when I think that I am. But I've asked the Lord to free me from any desire of being right, but to instead merely, fairly, and evenly handle the text. There are going to be some divisive issues that are perhaps different from your upbringing or your tradition or your denominational background. But let's be Pauline above anything else. 
If we can agree to do that, I think Romans will have a tremendous impact on us. What we have to have is the Spirit of God love us, lead us, guide us, and guard us as we study the book of Romans. And I mean that. It's been said, and I agree, that the book of Romans is really nothing more than the Apostle Paul expositing, that is, unpacking and explaining a verse of the Old Testament. It's been said that the book of Romans is nothing more than Paul's exposition of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 says, And he, Abram, believed the Lord, Yahweh, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. That's the gospel. Abram didn't do anything. He didn't even get a chance to start counting the stars in the sky, and God counted it to him as righteousness because he believed. Now, make no mistake, Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, who studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He knew Genesis 15, 6 better than I ever will, but it never made any sense until the Spirit of God broke forth into his heart and his life, and it bloomed with brilliance, and he suddenly understood, oh, that's how the righteousness of God comes to a person. It's not by the stuff that we do. It is a free gift of grace, and it forever changed Paul. But the Spirit of God had to do that in him. So I'm praying that the Spirit of God will do the same thing in us. And all of us, the more we consider who God is, what God has done, into and through us, that we will be caught worshiping. I would so give thanks to God if I started to get texts and emails from husbands and wives that say, you're never going to believe it. There I was. I walked in the kitchen, and he had his hand up, and he was just praying, thanking God. It's not funny. That ever happened? You ever been busted in full praise? My prayer is that the book of Romans will drive all of us to get busted in blessing the Lord. So, all of us have something that we can glean from the book of Romans. That's why I should warn you that today we're going to have some points of application throughout the sermon, but we're not going to stop at the end and have sort of a full batch of principles. We're just going to drop these in line because at the end, I want my friend Matt McGill to come back up here. By the way, how about Matt McGill, who I just say a thing like off the cuff, and he writes a song and orchestrates it, because praise God that we have that kind of leadership that will do that, and that song. So Matt's going to come back up at the very end. We're just going to sing together, and we're going to worship in response to what I hope is a mutually agreed to gospel. Now, very quickly, I need to give a quick on-ramp introduction to the book of Romans. <laughs> Stick with me. It'll be quick. The book of Romans, I mentioned this a few weeks ago when we were in the book of Acts chapter 20, that Paul is on his third missionary journey. He is in Greece, more precisely, he's in Corinth, probably A.D. 57. It's during what we call the painful visit to Corinth. Things were going bad there. And Paul writes the book of Romans to this church, or more accurately, this group of churches in Rome, but he's never been there, and he doesn't know the people from there. He'd never visited Rome. Paul didn't plant these churches. Peter did not plant these churches. And so they actually have no apostolic foundation. When Paul finally does make it to Rome at the end of the book of Acts, there are already healthy, thriving churches there that love him because he's already written a letter to them because they are existing already. So where did they come from? How did the church in Rome get started? Well, there's a lot of theories, but the bottom line is that we just don't know for certain. I will tell you the best opinions and what I happen to believe myself 
is that more than likely, back in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, there are Jewish God-fearers from all over the Roman Empire that have streamed into Jerusalem for Pentecost. And the Spirit of God falls, and these people hear the preaching of the gospel in their own language, and they receive and they believe. The call of God goes out, they are recipients, they are believers, and they go back to their uh, their distant lands, and they plant churches. We know that that happened in North Africa. We know that it happened in, apparently, Rome. Very likely that two of those people were named Priscilla and and Aquila, husband and wife. We know that when Paul gets to Corinth, they have been kicked out of Rome by Emperor Claudius, who expelled all the Jews. They come to Corinth. Paul spends some time with them, and then he takes them to Ephesus, leaves them in Ephesus to encourage the church and the apostles there. So we think maybe started by Priscilla and Aquila. We just can't know for sure. It's interesting, though, that Paul writes this letter during the emperorship of Emperor Claudius. Claudius is the guy under whom a tremendous famine had happened in the book of Acts. Claudius is the guy who expelled all of the Jews in Rome because of this uprising surrounding a man named Christus. Hmm. Claudius had no idea who that was all about. It is Claudius who was given the title in the Roman Empire, Claudius, Emperor, the Son of God, whose birthday is a good news, a gospel. This is the guy who was in power when Paul writes this letter, so it's very much agreed that Paul is almost certainly writing a response to, oh, no, 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 let me tell you who the real king is. Let me tell you who the real, eternal, everlasting, death-proof king is, who actually is the Son of God, who is the gospel, is Paul's reason for writing all of this. Soon after the beginning of the church, of course, it was mostly Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, but of course, being in the heart of the Roman Empire, the capital of Uh, the empire of mankind, the city of this world, Gentile believers begin to flood in as well. And so Paul is writing to both Jewish and Gentile believers at the same church. And he tells them very plainly, I'm looking to you, church in Rome, to be an established base camp for my mission to go into Spain where the gospel has never been preached before. I need you, church of Rome, to be strong, to be stalwart, to be a a launch pad for an additional preaching of the gospel. Now, a very quick overview of the book of Romans. There are 16 chapters. It has been said, rightly, that the book of Romans is a microcosm. It is an encapsulation of the entire Bible. Romans 1, 2, and 3 are the doctrine of condemnation. The first three chapters, you can just, if you want to make a little note there, are condemnation. The New Eric translation is, everybody's jacked up. Whether you're Jew, Gentile, religious, irreligious, Everybody is jacked up. Those three chapters are the doctrine of condemnation. So so then what? What has to happen? Well, chapters 4 and 5 are the doctrine of justification. It's not just as if I've never sinned. That's not enough. It's being found jacked up, condemned, but declared righteous by the sovereign judge of the cosmos. So three chapters of condemnation, two chapters of justification. Being found guilty, but declared righteous. Well, then what happens to a person who was condemned but declared righteous? Ah, chapters 6, 7, and 8 are the doctrine of sanctification and glorification. Conforming, pressing, making somebody who is far from God into the image of the Son of God. That's chapters 6, 7, and 8. And then we have chapters 9, 10, and 11. The doctrine of the vindication of the sovereignty of God. Nothing slips past him. He's not caught off guard. Oh, yes, he still has a plan for Israel. God is sovereign even with 
Israel. That's chapters 9, 10, and 11. Finally, which leads us to the greatest therefore in the known language, when Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, therefore. From chapters 12 through 15, we have application. In view of all of God's mercy, the righteousness of God now revealed, in view of that, here's what we're going to do. And so we get all these chapters, 12 through 15, of application. Finally, chapter 16 is the benediction where Paul says, I cannot wait to come to you and to see you. And as it turns out, Paul gets a full Roman military escort to come into Rome to greet these churches. So with all of that now as a run-up, we're going to start Romans chapter 1. I'm going to go one verse at a time fairly quickly. As Stephanie's already mentioned, these first seven verses are one very long run-on sentence. It is like putting your face in a box of surgical sharps to diagram this thing, but I've done it, and I don't want to do it again, so just take my word for it. It's one very long seven-verse run-on sentence. It is the longest of all of Paul's 13 epistle introductions. It's absolutely packed. I think Paul sits in Corinth and he says, I've got to get this thing out. It is not Paul's systematic theology because there are some core pieces that he leaves out, but it is his theology of what God has done. It is the gospel of God. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul. And then Paul's going to say three things about himself. We're going to spend just a little bit of time on. Paul, a servant of of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So let's talk about these one at a time in brief. He was a servant of Christ Jesus. A servant is doulos, is the Greek word there. Now in the Roman context, a doulos is, of course, a bondservant or a slave. And everyone in Western civilization understood that that meant a person who was property, who was under the lordship of a master, who was to do what the master said, who was to accomplish the will of his master. Everybody knew that. But Paul's also writing to a group of Jewish believers who were sitting in Rome, and the term bondservant or doulos, translated from Hebrew to Greek, means something also important and both true. The Hebrew word is eved, means a servant or a slave. And in the Hebrew culture, a bondservant was someone who willingly bound himself to a master because he loved that master, because he trusted that master, because that master was good, and because that master could provide a better life than that person could provide on their own. So which is it? Yes, Paul is writing to both Jews and Gentiles. I, Paul, am a bondservant, a slave, a, a, a servant of Christ Jesus. This is who I am. This is my identity. But see, right there, we've already been communicated something profound. Don't go too quickly through the book of Romans. If Paul is a bondservant of Jesus, that's telling us something massive. You don't become a slave to somebody who's dead. Everybody in the Roman Empire had heard that this guy who had caused a ruckus was dead. But now Paul's saying, but I am his slave. I have lovingly bound myself, and he has bought me with a price. I am not my own. I'm his, which means Jesus is alive. Because he's alive, he must be God, and because he's God, he must be king. Therefore, he is my master. This is how Paul starts the book of Romans, with this incredibly steep pronouncement that Jesus is alive and that I am his servant. He was dead, but he's now alive. And then Paul says he was called to be an apostle. Now, this is where I might begin to rant and rave just a little bit, probably wave my appendages frantically. It's okay. It's not a seizure. I'm just excited. Paul is telling us something just as profound. This is where the Apostle Paul is going to succinctly and efficiently tell us that God did this. 
Paul, called to be an apostle. In other words, Paul's saying, I didn't do this. This wasn't my idea. Paul's saying, I was absolutely not running in the right direction of righteousness. And I was not running in the right direction of morality. And God just sort of gave me a little boost or a nudge to get me across the line of salvation. Oh, no, 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 no. Paul says, I had nothing to do with this. The king of kings summoned me. And so this is my first point. It goes like this. There is no such thing as fairly righteous. There is righteous and there is unrighteous. Many of us, if we're honest in the depths of our soul, kind of feel like, I just needed a boost or a nudge. Like, I, I did grace, yeah, grace just sort of got me across the line. I did the hard work. I've been good. I've been moral. I've been decent. God just sort of extended a hand and, and dragged me across the line of faith. There is no such thing as fairly righteous. There is the Son of God. There is everybody else. Paul was running hard in the wrong direction. He was not righteous at all. Oh, he was the most moral person you would have ever met and the most unrighteous. And by the way, so am I. And so are you. So when I say there is no such thing as fairly righteous, let me nuance this and say this a little bit more directly and watch as your gates do this. But just, just stick with me here. Let me put it this way. All human condemnation is just. Any human salvation is grace. Now we might think on that intellectually and academically and go, yeah, that's true, except for me, and I'm actually a pretty good person and God's lucky to have me on his team. Then you don't get grace. You don't deserve it. All human condemnation is just. Any human salvation is grace. God is not, has never been in the business of giving good people a boost to be slightly better and have slightly improved lives. You know, Paul was running hard in the wrong direction. He was murdering Christians and therefore directly persecuting Jesus himself. Jesus says so in Acts chapter 9. See, that's what God does. It's astonishing. God takes people who are far from him, who are enemies, who are rebel hearts, and he turns them because he loves them. It's hard for us to understand because that's not how we treat people. We treat people transactionally. What can they do for me? What can I get from them? How will they make me look? How will they make me feel? Or the flip side is, ooh, they're threatening and make me afraid. I want my government to carpet bomb them. But praise be to God, he does not think of any people that way. He loves them. And he is willing in his time to turn the rebel heart to himself because he loves them. Paul says, he did this. He turned me. He was called to be an apostle, literally apostolos. It means the sent one, one sent by the king. We know from Corinthians and Galatians what it takes to be an apostle. You have to have seen the risen Lord Jesus and the risen Lord Jesus has to have given you direct commission, direct instruction. Both of those things, to be an apostle. There are no apostles walking around today. You have to have been uh, a witness to the risen Lord Jesus and a recipient of direct instruction. Paul says, I was an apostle called. I didn't do this. God did this. Well, what is an apostle? Paul's writing to the church in Rome. They understood what apostles were because it's a title of office in the Roman Empire. We might think of it as a herald ambassador, someone who goes around declaring the desire and the decree of the Caesar. What these herald ambassadors did not ever do was go around saying things like, hey, guess what? Can I tell you about Caesar? Yeah, he's Lord. And if you feel like it or if you figure it out, you can be a part of his program of dominion. 
No, 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 no. No Roman herald ambassador ever did that. They said, Caesar is Lord, bow the knee or die. That's literally the job description of a herald ambassador of the Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord, join the empire or die. And so what Paul is saying is, I am telling you, Jesus is alive. He is Lord. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Come in or spend eternity in darkness with yourself. That's what Paul is saying. I am a herald ambassador. I am declaring the gospel. I was set apart for this. Herald ambassadors, apostles, do not give invitations. They give decrees of what was and what was to be. That's what Paul says, that's my job. And I was running hard in that direction, but the Spirit of God turned me in this direction. I didn't ask for this, but praise be to God, he did a thing in me. Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. We know that Paul understands, probably from his time and training with Jesus directly, that he was set apart specifically. Paul tells us in Galatians, from my mother's womb, God set me apart. That is a massively important statement. Paul is saying, just like the prophet Isaiah, just like the prophet Jeremiah, who said, God set me apart from my mother's womb, you called me to this ministry. Paul says the same thing. In other words, he is equating his apostolic ministry to that of an Old Testament prophet. That is really big news. That means that Paul understands, as he'll say in Ephesians 2, that this church is built on the writings of the prophets and the apostles, and he understands that he is one. That means he knows that he's writing Holy Scripture, which is why he says, moving on, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I didn't choose this. God chose this for me and in me. And yet we also know that Paul, even though he was set apart from birth, ran for decades hard in the wrong direction. Isn't that interesting? Why did God allow the Apostle Paul to be at least 36 years old before seizing him and pointing him in the direction of received righteousness? Paul tells us the answer to that in 2 Timothy. God allowed me to do that, to kill other Christians, to be the enemy of the gospel, so that in me, Paul says, the Gentiles might see the grace of God. How is that for humbling? Paul said, I am the poster child. God chose me to be the captain of his dodgeball team, and I have no arms and legs. That's grace. And God did a transformative thing so that the nations would see the kind of God that this God of grace is and what he does. The gospel of God. Well, what is the gospel of God? Well, He's not going to take verses 2, 3, and 4 to explain and define what the gospel of God is. It comes in little nuggets, little facets, little elements that I want to unpack very quickly. Verse 2, which, this gospel of God, he promised beforehand. So let me say as directly as I possibly can. Christianity is not some unexpected splintering off of Judaism. I hear Christians today apologizing like, oh gosh, I'm sorry, Jewish friends, I wish we could all just get along and, you know, Sorry, sometimes, you know, stop it. Christianity is the full flower, blossom, and bloom of Judaism. 
planned beforehand from eternity past. This is always what the prophets were driving to, that there would be a Messiah who would come, who would bind up all of the faithfulness, all of the provision, all of the power, all of the goodness of God in a person. And it has happened. Judaism was always driving to this, so much so that the Apostle Paul will say in chapter 2 that Christians are true Jews. I have a Jewish friend who's a rabbi who says the most anti-Semitic thing you can do is not preach the gospel. Now, I know we want to be politically correct and can't we all just get along and coexist? The answer is no. I didn't make that up. Rip off the bumper sticker. Sorry, I didn't say it. Christianity is not some unexpected surprise splintering off of Judaism. It is the full flower, blossom, and bloom of Judaism. We make no apology for that. It was promised beforehand through, he says, his prophets. Not by his prophets, through his prophets. That is, this was always expected. Way back from Genesis chapter 12, the seed of Abraham will be a blessing to all nations. And Paul says, he's here. He's come. It's not what we expected, but he has come. And he's alive. And the best news of all, he's good. See, if he's sovereign and a death-proof king, but he's not good, we have big, big problems. But he's good. And he is loving. Concerning uh, verse 2, sorry, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's the only time you're going to see this expression, the Holy Scriptures. Paul says, this is how God communicates with his people through Scripture. This is how God leads his congregation through Scripture. So this is why we do what we do here in this Bible church. It's not up to us, and we're not going to change it. That's above our pay grade. God leads and reveals his righteousness to his recipients through his word. He calls Scripture holy, and Paul understands that he's writing Scripture, and Peter says, yes, Paul is writing Scripture. That's a awesome, weighty thing to know as you sit down. Hey, this is the word of God. But Paul understood it, and he recognized it, and he wrote accordingly. Now, he says something absolutely incredible in verse 3. This gospel of God, it was promised beforehand. It was revealed in Holy Scripture. This is part of the elements of this gospel of God, the whole molecule. Verse 3, concerning his son. It's about Jesus. Now, that's a very delicate way that Paul is communicating something enormous. We sort of miss it because it's in English, but what Paul is saying is, this is the true Son of God, meaning he is preexistent. He didn't become the Son of God at the Incarnation. He has always eternally been the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God. He became human at the Incarnation. But the Gospel is that God looked at the world, the created order, and said, no longer will a mere prophet or a priest or a Levite do. I have to send one who is, um, who's, um, oh, what's the word? Me! To be among them. Concerning his son, who was descended from David. Why is that a part of the gospel of God? Why is Jesus' Davidic lineage a part of the gospel of God? Well, this leads me to my next point. This is enormous. Again, I, wanna, I know I'm, I'm going to see some of your gates pop up here, but let it go, let it go. Easy. Here's my next point. The gospel is a person, not a thing. The gospel is a person. This is Paul's whole point. It's a person. He is the son of God. He is in the line of David. Why is that a part of the gospel? Well, he's writing to Gentiles, telling him he is the son of God, not Claudius. He's writing to Jews, saying he is of the line of David. He is the promised one. Don't you see, a thousand years ago, when the 
king was named David. He was supposed to be the one who would rule and reign in righteousness, who would eradicate wickedness and evil and injustice in the world and spread joy to the nations. How'd he do? Uh, not so good. But that's okay, because he had a son named Solomon who, oh yeah, that thousand wives thing. That didn't. It. And then the kingdom was split, and things went from bad to worse to unspeakably horrific. And so for a thousand years, they've been looking for the king who would come, who would spread prosperity and joy and righteousness and goodness and health for a thousand years. And Paul says, he's here. He's here, the one that Abraham was told of, the one that David was supposed to have been. He's here. Don't you see? Every human heart longs for a leader who will be like the Lord. But there's never been one ever, but there has been one who has come. But something catastrophic, something cataclysmic is going to be revealed to us. Verse 3, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. He was the preexistent eternal son of God. He became human, took on human likeness. Verse 4, and was declared to be the son of God in power. If you have an NIV, it probably says declared with power to be the son of God. And that's true. That's not what the text says. However, I take it very uh, accurately that the text is as the ESV renders it he was declared to be the son of God in power he always has been the son of God but it was the resurrection of Jesus that gives him the title the son of God with power you see in his earthly ministry he laid aside his divine prerogative and he relied solely in weakness on the leading of the Holy Spirit but at the resurrection this man who is also God, this God who is also man, is now elevated in rank and title. He is now the son of God with power, and he rules on the Davidic throne. This is very good news. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Now, why does Paul say that the spirit of holiness is the one who is the agent of the resurrection? Only time we're going to see this expression, only time the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of holiness. Because Paul's writing to people in the Roman Empire who were dealing in the occult and crazy, rank wickedness, trying to have seance-like dealings with the dead. And Paul understands that many people will say, oh, wait a minute, death dealers, resurrection, so you got a bunch of people who are gathering around a corpse and chanting and, woo, he's a god now, woo. No, 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 Paul says, this is not some wicked, nasty, grotesque working of the occult in the Roman Empire. This is the spirit of holiness who has done this, and only the spirit of God can deal with the dead because it is a dirty business. According to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Now see, we, we, we read past that because we read our Bibles before, we've been to church before, we hear, oh yeah, Jesus was alive, he's dead, now he's alive again. It's a cataclysm. It's a horror it's a tragedy and a travesty of justice. We've just been told that the gospel of God concerns the Son of God, who is preexistent, who is divine, who is deity, who is human, who is of a line of the King of David, but he's dead. So something has happened between Romans 1.3 and Romans 1.4 where this Messiah has died. Jewish readership is going, Messiahs don't die. Messiahs don't get stripped naked, spat upon, mocked, punched in the face, and hanged naked on crosses. It is offensive to the Jew and a stumbling block to the Gentile. Paul will write in Corinthians. This Messiah was conquered. He didn't conquer. And so we know that he inaugurated, he instigated, he initiated all those promises of the Old Testament. But what Paul is telling us also is he must be coming back. 
He didn't completely finish the job just yet. This gospel is significant. It is a person, not a thing. Finally, at the end of verse 4, he names him the Lord, or Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, verse 5. As I said, the book of Romans is the microcosm of the entire Bible. Romans chapter 1, verse 5 is the microcosm of the entire book of Romans. I would strongly encourage you to read the book of Romans every week. Carve out 15, 20 minutes, read a chapter a week, something. But memorize Romans 1, 5. It is the book of Romans in sum. Chapter 1, verse 5. Through whom, that's referring to the Lord Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. By the way, everyone agrees and understands that when Paul says we, he means he himself. Now, we have to understand grace. He says, through whom, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. We have to understand grace. That's the central theme, that the righteousness of God is given by grace. That's the thing. The righteousness of God is given by grace. The word grace, charis, is used 155 times in the New Testament. A hundred of those times it is used by the Apostle Paul. And 25 of those times it's used in the book of Romans. Paul really wants us to understand grace. But we could probably take a non-scientific poll. We could sit downstairs in the foundry. And I could say, when you hear the word grace, what do you mean? Some people might say, oh, grace. Yeah, wasn't she married to Prince Rainier of Monaco? That's true. Well, what else do you think about when you think about grace? Oh, I think about the moves uh, of, a, of a dancer, of someone in ballet. They have grace. Okay, well, what else do you think about grace? Well, I had a cat named Grace. Great. What else do you think about grace? Very rarely are just people out in the world going to say unmerited favor, an undeserved kindness. But that's what we're talking about with grace, an undeserved kindness, an unmerited blessing. And Paul says, because of God's grace, I was made an apostle. I didn't deserve it. There's nothing in me that merited this position other than my rampant sin running the wrong direction. And he says, I was given this for a reason. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith. Now, if you read a thousand commentaries on that expression, you're going to find 499 of them that say this, 501 of them that say this. What does the obedience of faith mean? Does it mean the obedience that comes as a result of a person having faith? Does it mean that? And some of you come from a tradition, from a tradition that says, you better believe it. Absolutely. Case closed. Okay. Or does it mean the obedience that actually is faith? Does it mean the obedience that actually is faith? And the Apostle Paul would answer that and say, yes. I don't understand why there's any confusion. Of course, it has to be both of them. That's what the gospel of God does. Yes, it is the command to believe. And because a person has believed, there will be a change. It's both and they go together. No, Paul and the epistle of James are not in conflict with one another. They absolutely agree. And Paul says the point of this gospel of God here in verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith, but not in an end of itself, for the sake of his name among the nations. There is a greater, grander purpose to the gospel. So let me say it as directly and perhaps as offensively as I can. It's my next point. The gospel is not principally about something that can happen to us, the gospel is news about something that has happened. In other words, the primary point of the gospel is not to save people. 
It is about the greatness of what God has done as a grace. The principal, primary point of the gospel is not to save people. It is about the greatness of the name of God. It's not principally about something that can happen to us. The gospel is news about something that has happened. It is a point in history that has occurred. The point of the gospel is to make the name of God great. That's what the text says. Because of the glory he deserves for what he shockingly, marvelously has done in grace. Among all the nations, yes, to the Jews, but certainly also to the Gentiles, to the Romans, the invaders of Israel, to the Ninevites, to the Philistines, to the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, to all of them, to be a blessing to them. By the way, some of you might be going, well, hold on a second. That sounds like you, you are not advocating for evangelism. Far, far, far from it. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I want to remind you, as Mike has announced, this coming Wednesday in this very room, I'm not kidding when I say I would absolutely love to see this room jam-packed where all of us would gather as those who want to eat this elephant, if you will, together, and to learn how to sharpen the axe a little bit more on to give the gospel relationally. Not to invite people into a culture of formulas of legalism, which has no transforming power whatsoever, but I mean evangelism, gospelism, where we learn to articulate perhaps more accurately, perhaps more succinctly, more relevantly, the truth of the gospel. I'm going to be here. Mike's going to be here. I hope that you will make a plan this coming Wednesday to be in this room because Paul says the gospel of God is so that the name of God will be great among the nations. That colors and determines all of our mission strategy, all that we're trying to do and be from here in the center of the city. Now then, Paul moves on in verse 6. He says, including you, those of you who are in Rome, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul tells the church in Rome that they are included in the nations who are exhibiting the obedience of faith. Their lives manifest faith, and they have responded to the call to believe. It's both end. The gospel has been received. They have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, I just, I, I get it. I know that that is a distinctly un-American statement. It's not a democratic act. The, implica the implication is clearly that a selecting choice was made for these people in Rome, but it was made by God. I know your gates are coming up again and you're turning your shoulders. Some of you are easy. I'm just telling you that what Paul is saying about them, who they are forensically, their identity is that God did something to them. He called them. I want us to pause for just a moment and ponder the scandal of grace that Jesus calls people who don't deserve it. No, he really, that's what he does. That's his business. He calls people who don't deserve it. And that's really true of every single one of us, which leads to my next point. And it goes like this. The call of Christ creates what it commands. The call of Christ creates what it commands. Yes, what I'm advocating for in this text, centrally, but in many other texts, is that regeneration precedes faith. That God calls us and we respond every time nobody slips through, always. And let me be crystal clear. At the same time, the Bible has no category, no instance ever of somebody who wants to be called but isn't. That person does not exist. So easy with the gates there, people. Easy. Easy. I'm just telling you what the text says. We also know, tragically, that not all are called. 
but those who are called are his. And when we preach, when we give the gospel, when we are trained on Wednesday evening to give the gospel, it is a part of the call that God uses, a part of that invitation. But that is different from the call that, God, that Paul is talking about in verse 6. That call that Paul is talking about in verse 6 always lands. Or let me reiterate it. One man writes it like this. We as preachers, as teachers, as givers of the gospel, as family members and friends, we can issue a call for conversion, but only God can issue a converting call. Do you understand? There's nothing I have ever said that has saved a single human soul, ever. I can be a part of the proclamation of truth, and God can use that, but only God can issue a converting call because that is what miraculously transformed people from those who view Christ as some defunct legend or myth into people who suddenly find him beautiful and believable. And that happens supernaturally. I used to think this about Jesus, but now I have repented, and now I think this. He's beautiful, he's believable, and no sane person would run or reject from that which they hold as beautiful and believable. And that's what the gospel does to people because the gospel is a person and not a thing. It's Jesus. Look at him. Look at him. Look what he's like. Look what he said. Look what he did. Look what he was all about. And your heart should swell and go, yeah, and he loves me. And I love him. And the reason I love him is because he loved me first. I don't deserve that. That's grace. Now you're getting it. Now we're beginning to get it more clearly. We don't fully understand what takes place at the new birth. We've tried to distill it down in American Western civilization into some little series and formulas, but we don't understand exactly what happens. I have been to many waiting rooms, many labor and delivery nurseries, and I've seen lots and lots of babies right after they're born. And I've asked them, what happened to you? They don't know. Not a one. They just fill their diaper and coo. It's precious. They have no idea. Otherwise, they might get credit for crawling out of the womb on their own strength. Babies don't know how they're born. They're just born by the will of somebody else. And as they grow, as they age, as they mature, they can begin to read a manual on obstetrics and understand, ah, this is what happens. This is where babies come from. They go away with their parents on long weekends and they have awkward conversations. Oh, that's where babies come from. It's the book of Romans is the manual of, of obstetrics. It's the conversation that can potentially be awkward, but it explains where we come from. It explains the new birth. This is the book of Romans. So, verse 7, finally, we'll conclude here. To all those in Rome who are... <laughs> this is a scandal. Loved by God. These are people in Rome, the city of man, not the city of God, that's Jerusalem, the city of man, the heart of the Roman Empire, this Rome that will rise again at the end of the age as the center of worldliness to those believers who are in Rome who are beloved of God. Incidentally, that title, beloved of God, is reserved only for the Son of God. In the Old Testament, the Son of God is called Israel. What Paul is telling us is that Jesus is true Israel. That'll be a constant refrain. Jesus is true Israel. He's the Son of God. He's the beloved of God. But you Christians in Rome, you are in Christ. You have moved from being far from God, the enemies of the people of God, to being beloved of God. God loves you. You don't deserve it. My soul, you're a Roman. But he loves you. And his Son has died for you. To all 
those in Rome who are loved by God, and just to make sure we get it, and called to be saints. When the decree of the king goes out and says, you are in my dominion, you say, thank you for noticing me. And you respond every time, always. We'll see that at the end of chapter 8. Called, not just to not go to hell one day, but to be saints, the holy ones, in their setting and context. Grace to you and peace. There's that word grace. Additional unmerited favor and blessing and kindness to those who don't deserve it and peace. Incidentally, it's always, always, always in that order, never out of order. The whole world wants peace, but you can't have it unless you have first received grace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I wonder if this morning you're angry and not coming back next week, or if you're saying, wow, I've never thought of the gospel that way, or perhaps I hope and I pray you're saying, my goodness, that he has done this for me, undeservedly so, and that even now the Spirit of God is flashing names and faces in front of your face, and that you're beginning to think, my God, that you would do for them unmeritedly what you have done for me. Or perhaps you're sitting here going, all I've ever known is a list of formulas of some culture into which I was born because of where and when I was born. I'm going to invite you to believe the gospel of God, the Son of God in the line of David, who is dead, who is alive, and who will come again. Now for the rest of you, I'm going to invite you to respond. We're going to have a time of singing. We're just going to worship together and contemplate concentrate on what the gospel means to us. The band's going to come back up here. We're going to sing a song together. At the conclusion, we'll benedict and be dismissed. If you want to come and pray with me, with anyone who'll be here at the front about anything that you've heard, ask questions, we want to help you deal with this. And so may the gospel of God continue to sound forth. I'm going to invite you to worship together as a church. Let's worship. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.